You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. From our earliest days as children, we learn a fundamental truth that the bigger the building, the bigger the foundation needs to be. And we, we start with you know, little letter blocks or maybe it's Legos, uh, Magnetiles or Lincoln Logs. It doesn't really matter what you're using to build, but if you want to build taller and higher, you need a substantial and stable foundation. And we may not understand the engineering behind it, capacity loads and and that sort of thing. But we know, we learn very quickly that the bigger and taller the building, we need to give it proper support. And then we get older and we start having homes. So take the average two-story home in New England. It needs a basement foundation of at least eight feet deep with proper footings to support the weight of the home. And at eight feet deep, it's well below the frost line and it has a bearing capacity that will stand up under the load of the home, the structure that you build on top of it. But what if you want to build something bigger than a home? What if you want to build a skyscraper? Or say you want to build the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the tallest building in the world. At 2,717 feet, it is 490 feet taller than the second tallest building in the world. They didn't just outshine by a few feet. They went 490 feet taller. It is, to put it in perspective, three times taller than the Eiffel Tower, twice as high as the Empire State Building. And the foundation for the Burj Khalifa is equally impressive. There were over 58,900 cubic yards of concrete weighing more than 110,000 tons to construct the concrete and steel foundation with 192 piles, those are what support the load, that are buried, listen to this, more than 164 feet deep. Like I said, the bigger the building, the bigger the foundation. Now this principle is equally true of promises. The bigger the promise, the bigger the foundation needs to be. And this morning in Romans 8, 28 to 30, in our series in Romans 8, we come to the promise of Romans 8, 28. There is a reason why Christians have hung onto this promise because it is a promise that soars above the rest. In terms of promises, it is the Burj Khalifa of promises. It is second to none. And just like the Burj Khalifa, its foundation that we get in Romans 8, 29 and 30 is equally impressive. So what Paul is doing, he gives us this massive promise in 8, 28. And then he lays out the kind of foundation that you need to support or guarantee that promise. So this morning, we want to marvel at these verses. We want to gaze up at the promise and consider the foundation that supports it. Our text breaks down into two movements this morning. First, we're going to look at the promise that we find in verse 28. We're going to find that God promises 
to work all things together for the good of his people. Not just good things, but all things, including trials, suffering, and pain. God has promised to work all of it for your good. If that's true, that is a promise you can build your life on. That is a promise that will bring stability to your life. That is a promise that offers real hope. And there isn't a promise in the world that surpasses it. Second, we're going to see the foundation. This comes in verses 29 and 30. With a promise of such grandeur and height and weight and glory, as verse 28 is, it needs a strong foundation. It needs something to support that massive promise. And that's what we have in Romans 8, 29 to 30. In these verses, we see God's sovereignty on full display to secure and support the promises made in verse 28. In these two verses, we will find an unbreakable chain of God's plan of salvation. And it provides this unshakable foundation for the promise. So let's begin together in verse 28 to look at the promise. Let's hear it again. Verse 28. Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So as we start, I want to unpack the the promise. I want to just state it plainly and clearly so you don't miss it. And I want us to have it in our minds as we work through the verse. Here's the promise. It's pulled directly, word for word, from the text. It goes like this. All things work together for good. That's the substance. That is the promise. That all things work together for good. Now that is a massive promise. Paul is saying, in no uncertain terms, that the God of the universe... With all his omniscience, all his all-knowingness, all his omnipotence, his his unlimited power, all his omnibenevolence, meaning he is all good all the time, that that God is directing the fullness of his providence and sovereignty to ensure that every single thing in your life ultimately works out for your good. Notice, Paul didn't say, I think. He didn't say, I feel like God is doing this. He didn't say, I suppose. Maybe. He didn't say, it could be. He didn't say, I'm like 99% sure. There's a really good chance. No, he says, we know. This is a promise we can know with confidence and certainty. But not only can we be confident and certain about it, it it's also comprehensive. You notice Paul said all things. Not some things, not most things, all things. So this is every situation. This is every relationship. Every circumstance. The good times and the bad. Everything in between. The happy and the sad. Both joy and sorrow. Evil. Suffering. Every, suffering of every kind. Every trial. Literally every moment of every day. All things means all things. And all of them. God is working together for your good. Notice this this is not dependent upon your ability to know how God shapes all those things and works all things and directs all all those things. 
This is one of those things that God says, this is a God thing. This is one of the things I can do. You, you actually can't do it. It's not contingent upon us. This promise is beyond our scope and ability. And friends, that should not be shocking or surprising to us. Why? Because as humans, we are by our very nature limited. All those omni words I mentioned, none of them apply to you. You're not omni anything. Only God is. We are by our natures limited. We are limited in power. We are limited in knowledge. We are limited, just the fact that we are limited in one specific time and place. But God, by his very nature, is limitless. He's limitless. He's able to make such a promise because he is such a God. Only God can make that promise. And this promise is also comforting because the goal of this promise is our good. It's our good. He has our good in mind. The one being in the entire world who's ever existed, who actually knows what is good for you, is actually working out that good for you. Now, I know when we use the word good, we often mean average. Good has fallen on kind of bad times in our uh, common language. We'll say things like, he's good but not great. Or that meal was good, but it, it could have been better. We use good to talk about things that are average and mediocre. And I, and I don't want you to think that that's what God is meaning here. When God says he's working out all things for your good, he's not saying, I'm working all things for your averageness, for your mediocrity. That's not what he's saying. No, in the Bible, good represents wholeness and beauty. It is everything being right. Now think about it. When God created the heavens and the earth and he set the stars in the sky and he put boundaries for land and sea, when he create, created creatures to, to fill and multiply, when he made man and woman in his image after each segment of creation, what did God do? He stood back and he looked and says, this is good. And he wasn't saying, this is average, like I could have done better. No, he's saying, this is good. It's whole. He paused, reflected, and declared it good. Not average, not mediocre, good. Friends, the good that God has in mind for you is not the kind of fleeting, trivial, temporary things like health, wealth, and happiness. Those are nice things, but his goodness goes beyond those things. The good God has in mind is his complete and total transformation of your life. Verse 28 indicates... That God has a purpose in mind for the good that he is working. And in verse 29, he says the purpose of that is to conform you into the image of his son. It's to look like Jesus. Now, that is not a purpose that God has for some Christians. God has not decided, like, that I have some elite Christians, some, some of my more favored sons and daughters, that I want them to look like Jesus. No, this is a promise for all Christians, that we would all become like Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So his love for us is a fatherly, adoptive kind of love, and so we are. Then he says, the reason the world didn't know us is that it didn't know him. And then he says, beloved, we are God's children now. If you're in Christ, you're God's child right now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, that's Jesus, we shall be what? Like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John is telling us is that God loves his children. And that love, the love of the Father, is not a passive love. It's not a stagnant love. It's the kind of love that is active and transformative. You know that love can be transformative, right? When someone loves you with that kind of love, it changes you. It transforms you and then take that and magnify it an infinite number of times. When God loves you, it changes you. He has a purpose in mind. From the moment that you become joined to Jesus, at the moment when you are regenerated, born again, justified, declared righteous, all the way until God's work of salvation in your life is consummated in our glorification. In, in that time in between, that's when John said, what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not full. It's not complete yet. And in that in-between time, God is working all things toward your sanctification and growth and holiness so that progressively over time you look more and more like Jesus. Friends, that is goodness. And God is committed to use all things, every single thing in this life, including suffering of every kind, to accomplish that purpose. So no matter where you find yourself this morning, every single thing you are facing, all of it has a purpose. All of it is meant, if you are a beneficiary of this promise, for your salvation and maturation. God has a purpose for every single thing you are facing. So, and that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. So now that begs the question, if that's what the promise is, who is this promise for? He also tells us, who are the beneficiaries of this promise? Who is it that can say with confidence that everything I'm facing, both the good and the bad, all the joy, all the pain in my life is being directed by a sovereign God of love to bring about my good? Who can say that? Now notice, Paul does not say everything works out for good for everyone. That's not what he said. This promise is directed towards certain beneficiaries. It's not a universal promise. It is specific and concentrated on a very specific subset of humanity. And the primary way that Paul distinguishes who these beneficiaries are is, he says this little phrase, those who love God. God. Those who love God. That's who the beneficiaries are of this promise. Now, let me be clear. This is another area where we're going to have a hard time because we throw the word love around uh, uh, and, 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 and we don't use it with uh, particularity. To love God is not the same thing as like loving tacos. I do love tacos, but when I say I love God and I love tacos, we're, uh, I'm using the same word, but I don't mean them in the same way. To love God is not a generic thing. It's not a small thing. In fact, in the Bible, to love God is the first and greatest commandment. Your primary act of obedience is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Loving God is not a small matter. It's actually a decision of the will. It's a commitment of the heart. Loving God is a lifestyle that shows affection and allegiance to him. And the Bible tells us and our experience confirms 
that we actually aren't very good at loving God. Like that's the very first um, posture of humility on your way to becoming a Christian. You realize, I'm not good at that. I don't love God as I should. The Bible says on our own, we hate God. We hate him. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I'm telling you, apart from loving him, the other option is hating him. There's no neutrality there. We reject his authority on our own. We don't even seek after him. Romans 3, no one seeks after God, let alone loving him. Every single description of humanity before God's initiating love is meant to oppress upon us that we are unwilling and unable to love God. Remember what Paul said earlier in Romans 8, 7 to 8. He said, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you find that you love him, that you have an affection for him and an allegiance to him, your love for him is not evidence that you're a good person. It's not evidence that you have this innate ability to make good decisions. It's not evidence that that on your own you got yourself pulled together. No, listen to how the Bible describes those who love God. 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. How do we know that God loves the world? He sent his son. Then, in this is love. Listen. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's just a big word that means atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then verse 19 clinches it. We love, why? Because he first loved us. The only reason, if you find in your, in your heart a love for God, is because God has loved you first. He loves you and changes you, and then you're able to say, I love God. Friends, we are born into this world as those who do not love God. We are unwilling and unable to love him as we should. The reasons for that, because we're captivated, held captive and hell-bent by our sin to love ourselves and to do what we want to do. Every single person is born into this world with a fierce commitment to live life as we want But God in his mercy and grace initiates love toward us and brings us from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith, from death to life. And he instills in us a newfound love for him that is not of our own. It is is God putting that love into our heart. And those who love God can claim the promise of Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. Friends, I have stood at the base of the Burj Khalifa. I promise you, if you've never seen it, it's taller than whatever you're imagining in your mind right now. It's taller. You look up, you can't even see the top of it from the ground. You can't even take a picture of it. You won't get all of it in your camera. You've got to be really, really far away to get a full picture of it. It's that massive. And yet, it is a tiny thing compared to the promise of verse 28. I mean, just think about it. The infinitely wise, infinitely powerful God of the universe promises to ensure that every single sad 
thing in your life when it's all said and done will be as if it's untrue, as if it never happened, that God will work it such to make it that every, every evil intention against you actually works in your favor. The, lo- the loving, sovereign hand of God is directing all things to converge and contribute to the goal of your good. And when you close the gap between intellectually knowing this promise and by faith believing in this promise, things will change in your life. It's not very far from the head to the heart, but it is a long way for us to believe things like this. But when it makes its way from the head down into your heart, So that no matter what it is you're facing, you can look at it and say, I don't know how. It is incredibly painful, but I believe I am a beneficiary of the promise that God is working even this for my good. You'll start to see the day-to-day grind, not as this mundane reality, but as the slow and steady process of God's formation process. You will start to see the good things in your life as incredible blessings to be celebrated with gratitude. You will start to see pain and suffering as difficult, yes, but never meaningless. It's never meaningless because all of it has a purpose. All of it has a reason. All of it is converging and contributing to God's plan for your good. And when you close that gap between knowledge and belief, your faith will deepen and your perspective will change. John Piper writes, once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8, 28, everything changes. There comes into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good, all the pain, all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an absolutely incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. Friends, no promise in the world surpasses the height and breadth and weight of Romans 8, 28. Those who love God are the beneficiaries of this promise that all things work together for good. Now, a promise of this uh, height and grandeur and weight and glory needs an equally impressive, unshakable foundation that is extraordinarily deep and strong. And indeed it is. Let's look with me to get, let's all look together at verse 29. Verse 29. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want you to notice Five verbs in this chain. These five verbs provide the main piles, the supporting structures that bear the load of this massive promise. Here they are, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now as we move into these verses, I want you to keep in mind, this is not a comprehensive doctrine of soteriology. Soteriology just means the doctrine of salvation. Meaning, It's quite expansive, but it's not exhaustive. There's certainly more that might need to be filled in in order for it to be complete. In fact, in terms of salvation, there are two main parts. 
There's what God does and how we respond to what God does. There's what God does, what he's done for us and our side and how we respond to what God has done. And we've already said from verse 28 that those who love God, the reason they love him is that he has first loved them. And the Bible is clear from beginning to end that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. He's the one who initiates it. He's the one who enacts it. Here's three quick verses. Psalm 3, 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Why? From him comes my salvation. Revelation 7, 10, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is his, not ours. If we come looking for God, it's because God has already done something in us to want him to be looking for him. If you find that you are looking or seeking, God has already been doing something in your heart regardless of your knowledge of what God has been doing in your heart. He is the initiator of our salvation and we are the ones who respond. That's where you get biblical words like repentance and faith and turning to him. That's our response. And salvation certainly requires a response. And there's plenty to be said about that aspect of salvation. But in these verses, Paul isn't interested in that aspect of salvation at all. He is laser focused on what God does to save him. He's laser focused on what God does to to, to provide this foundation for this promise. How can it be such that God's promise of such grandeur and height is able to stand? Well, that's what he's doing. He's laying out this foundation. And this foundation is entirely planned and accomplished by God and God alone. And friends, I want you to know, I want you to start receiving this as the best news you've ever heard. You don't want to be a part of building this foundation. This is something God does. You don't want to be the one with the liability of designing and building the foundation for Romans 8.28. You want to just leave that to the expert. You want to leave that to God. For a promise as big as all things working together for the good of those who love him, you want someone who is infinitely wise, infinitely able, and infinitely good. And friends, that is not us. You want a sovereign God, an omnipotent God, planning and accomplishing this salvation project. So as we look at these five verses, we're just going to let this text say what it says without this need to to, to fill it out and go, oh yeah, but this is how we respond to that. We're just going to let God be sovereign in these verses. So let's look at that first word, foreknew, and buckle up. We've got a lot of Bible here. At a very basic level, foreknow just means to know before, to know before. But the question is, who or what is it that God knows before? And the phrase we have here is, those whom God foreknew. Those whom God foreknew. Now, who are those whom God foreknew? Well, that's referring back to these lovers of God. Those who love God. Those are the ones that God has foreknown. Those who love God and are called according to the purpose. So he's talking about these beneficiaries. That's who God has foreknown. Now notice, Paul doesn't say that God foreknew something about those whom he saves. It says that God foreknew them. Now a lot of times, good meaning people, they're Christians. But they want to interpret this verse by saying, well, here's what God does. God looked down the tunnel of time. He looks down the halls of history and he peeks in. And he's looking for people who will choose him. And he goes, oh, look, I found one. That person's going to choose me. So from before the foundation of time, I'm going to choose them because they chose me. 
So on the basis of, of their choice that God can know before, God predestines or chooses them. Now, do you know that in the next chapter, you turn the page, you go to Romans 9, Paul is going to argue emphatically against this interpretation. You don't even have to look far. Paul's going to go, oh, by the way, let me just tell you why. If you think that, that's wrong. And now he uses Jacob and Esau as an example. And he's going to say that God did not choose Jacob. He did not favor him because he knew Jacob uh, would end up doing good things. You remember in our study, Jacob's a terrible person, right? He's terrible. And and then he's going to explicitly say it's not because of Jacob's works or his human will. Let's read it together. Romans 9. Though they were not yet born, they're in the womb, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that the purposes of election might continue. Listen, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rachel was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So then Paul explains, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he, this is God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So here's his conclusion. So then it depends. God's favor, God's election, God's choosing does not depend on what? Human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. When God is looking for reasons and an explanation to decide who he wants to choose, he looks to himself, not to you. God is not contingent on us. God chooses not because of works or my future choice of him. God's choice mechanism is simply and purely his mercy, not human will or exertion. When you are a sovereign God, you are contingent on no one. It's like what it means to be sovereign. So if that's not what it means, then what does foreknowledge mean? God's foreknowledge is different than just mere foresight, meaning seeing something in the future. See, for Paul to just state that would be to state the obvious. Obviously, he's an omniscient God, so he knows everything. Things that have happened, things that are happening, things that will happen. Paul is making a much more significant point. See, when biblical authors make it a point to say that God knows someone, it's expressing something beyond information and recognition. Like, oh, God knows this. Of course he knows this. He knows everything. Something else is going on with this biblical word, and it has everything to do with how the Bible uses the word know, K-N-O-W. So when the Bible uses the word know, it is often referring to an intimate relational knowledge. Let me give you some examples. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Friends, that's not stating that Adam like knew some facts about Eve, okay? Right? Like this is knowledge in the biblical sense. The idea of knowing goes beyond mere information. And when it comes to God knowing people, it has a deeper meaning that goes beyond mere recognition. So if you were to do a word study on God knowing a person, you come to the conclusion that when God knows someone, he is showing a particular interest, affection, and action. And in fact, for all practical purposes, for God to know someone, it is essentially synonymous with the word love. Now, you might be thinking, I'd like to do that word study one day. Well, you don't have to wait. I'm going to do it for you right now. Genesis 18, 19. God speaking. He says, for I have chosen. Now listen, that word chosen that your Bibles translate chosen is the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. So the translators are, are, are doing the work for you to go, 
This word here, know, doesn't mean he just knows about him. He's saying, God chose him. He's saying, I have chosen him, that's Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised. This verse is saying that God knows Abraham, but the point isn't that God is aware of Abraham. Or like knows things about Abraham, but is choosing him as a recipient of his promise. And the best translators in the world know that and they go ahead and put that word chose there. Exodus 2.25, God saw the people of Israel and it said, and God knew. In Exodus, God, the people of God are enslaved. This verse isn't saying that God just happened upon the knowledge of knowing that they were enslaved. In fact, he told Abraham that that there was going to come a generation that was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Of course he knew about it. But the point is, and this is the turning moment in the book of Exodus. This is when God starts moving to deliver them from slavery. See, knowledge here is not just him knowing something about them, but God being moved to action. His love for them drove him to set them free. Psalm 1-6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist is not saying that God knows the way of uh, the, 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 the righteous but doesn't know the way of the wicked, right? Of course he knows the, the ways of the wicked. He knows everything about every single person. He knows the ways of the wicked and the righteous alike. What the psalmist is saying is that God knows the righteous in a particular way as to guard them, to protect them, to watch out for them, that he has a particular care for them. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Friends, God's not telling Jeremiah, hey, just so you know, I knew about you. I knew you were going to exist. No, he's telling him, I have a particular care and concern for you. And I'm setting you apart as my prophet. I knew you, Jeremiah. I knew you. Amos 3.2. You only, speaking to Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This fascinating passage. He's not saying, you know, I was unaware of all these other nations. But you only. No, no. He's saying, I knew you as a distinct, set apart. You were the people of God. And he's saying, you should know better. Amos is telling him, you, you are... Uh, you have lived in sin and you should know better because I have been your God. I gave you my law. You were my people. I knew you. I know you in a different way than I know the other nations. 1 Corinthians 8.3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Again, something deeper is going on. Here we see a direct connection between love and knowledge when it comes to relationship with God. If a person loves God, Paul says he's known by God. It's not that God doesn't know about other people who don't know him, like he's unaware of them. It's that he has a particular, distinctive, relational knowledge of those who love him. Here's another one. When, uh, and this one brings both choice and the idea of relational knowledge together. When Peter preached his first sermon at Pentecost to Israel, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Meaning, you guys know about who Jesus is. This Jesus delivered up according to the what? The definite plan and 
foreknowledge, that's our word of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is saying Jesus was crucified according to a definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. And he's not saying that God merely knew it would happen. Of course he knew that. What he is saying is that God the Son, who is intimately known and loved by God, was what? Chosen by God from before the foundation of the world to be sent into the, in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ in order to, by the definite plan of God, to be crucified um, by the hands of sinful men. If you get the best Greek-English dictionary for biblical literature, it is the standard. It's a thick book. It's like $150. We call it BDAG for short. It stands for Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, who are the names of the four lexicographers. What it does, listen to this. It catalogs every single word in the Greek New Testament along with other literary works at the same time, which is what you want to do when you want to find out what does a word mean. Here is how they define this word used in Romans 8.29. They say the word foreknowledge really means choose beforehand. Another Greek lexicon, probably the second best one from Lo and Nida, translates this verse like this. Those whom he had chosen beforehand, he had already decided should become like his son. Friends, the point Paul is making goes beyond cognition or mere information. Paul's point is that God is doing something beyond a simple knowledge. We see it in Romans 11. Paul says this, Romans 11:2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This isn't saying that God has rejected people he just knew about. No, the only way this verse makes any sense is if the word means choose beforehand, right? Because choosing and rejection go together. He's saying, I did not reject those who I have chosen. Paul is saying, the people whom God chose beforehand, he has not rejected them. Now, when you take all of this into consideration... You could just as well translate Romans 8.29 as this. As those whom God foreloved, he predestined. As those whom God has chosen beforehand, he predestined. Here's the main point. Here's the purpose of, of that whole long word study. God initiates relationship with us. He made the first move towards us. We love Because he first loved us. He doesn't wait for you to start showing interest in him. Because if he did, he'd be waiting for eternity. He doesn't uh, wait. What he did was, before there was time, before there was any creation to speak of, he decided to love you. He chose you. Let me tell you why this is such good news. Your relationship with God is not secured by what you have done for him or your initiating choice. God would not trust something so precious to him as to put it in our hands. That would be like giving a small child a priceless heirloom and being like, go play with it, but don't break it, right? Of course it's gonna break. If it's in our hands, we will mess it up. God said, I am not trusting the weight and grandeur of the promise of Romans 8, 28 into your hands. It's going to solely rest in my hands. By his own infinite desire, God decided to love you. God has loved you forever. He foreknew you. That brings us to our next verb, predestined. This is the Greek word prohorizo. 
horizo, it's where we get our word horizon. And it's a great word picture of what's going on here. When you see the horizon, what are you doing? Well, you're seeing as far as the eye can see. And that's what God has done. He has laid out your horizon. He has determined what is going to happen in your life. Predestination means that God has predetermined and is guiding all things so that when you come to the end of your horizon, you will look like Jesus. That's why he says you were predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, and that is the trajectory. It's the horizon for every single Christian. Your destiny, your future is not left to chance. It's not simply that that he chose you beforehand, but he is guiding and superintending every single thing in your life. Do you see how that enables God to make good on his first promise? The reason God can work out all things is because he's, he's determined all things. He is setting all things, navigating all things. God for loves us, and that love is not inactive emotion. It's not just feel-good emojis. It is an active volition that plans, orchestrates, and moves with an undeterred resolve that we would achieve the highest goal imaginable. Whatever you think is good for your life, I promise you, 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 no eye has seen or ear has heard what God has planned for those who love him. His good is better than anything you could imagine for your life. That's why he's laid out the horizon for you. That's why he can make the promise of verse 28. And the goal, the horizon God has laid out for you is to look like Jesus. Now this should provide an understanding for why at times we go through suffering. Why? Because so did Jesus, right? If we're going to be conformed into the image of Jesus to look like him, doesn't it mean we're going to suffer like him? To go through the things he has gone through. The path of suffering leads to glory, but it also involves suffering. Now, some reject predestination because they think, well, that means that your life is robotic. If if, if things are predestined, it means that my decisions are inconsequential. And friends, I just want to tell you, that couldn't be further from the truth. You and I make real, free, and consequential decisions. You are responsible and culpable for every decision you make. And yet, at the same time, so that is one truth. And there is a parallel truth that God is sovereignly in control. The reason we don't know how those work out is because we're limited. But... Our brains can't understand how those can be true at the same time. What the Bible does is tell us that is true and that is true. They're both true at the same time. The Bible is not concerned with helping us understand the mysteries of the universe, God's infinite knowledge. Because we wouldn't be able to understand it anyway. What the Bible does say is I'm going to tell you what is true. It is true that your decisions are real, free, and consequential. The reason it feels like you make real free decisions is guess what? You make real free decisions. And yet God is sovereignly in control. Both true at the same time. The Bible never deals with how it works out, just that it does. And the point of this doctrine is to actually encourage us, not confuse us. It's meant to encourage us that as uh, to pursue uh, the end of our horizon. Pastor Ray Ortland writes this. So this is how we should think of predestination. So here's how you should think about it. 
Predestination is not a fire insurance policy to keep sleepy, semi-believers out of hell with their complacent sins undisturbed. No, predestination is God's purpose to make us like Christ and to fit us to be forever with Christ. If you are not pursuing God's purpose, that you would be holy and blameless in his sight, then predestination is not yours. Predestination is not a bed of ease for sinful indulgence. Rather, it is an encouragement for personal transformation. So let's pursue what God has planned, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And if we will, we will find all of God's uh, supporting our, all of God's love supporting our pursuit. See, the simple truth is this. If God left us alone, we would not on our own become or look like Jesus we would stay selfish, we would stay self-centered, and we would be self-destructive. But he chose to love us. He chose to uh, lay out the plan of our lives that we would be transformed in the image of perfect humanity. That is Jesus himself. Next word, so you got forno, predestined, now called. The first two words, forno and predestined, they happen in eternity past before the foundation of the world. This word, calling, is happening in real time. This is the moment, if you're a Christian, there was a moment when God called you. That God's sovereign plan, God's purposes of election came to this moment. That is your experience of salvation. So in eternity past, God set his love on you. He laid out the horizon of your life. He, he was committed to working all things for your good. And then at some point in your life, he personally drew near to you and made you alive. He put that love in your heart. You heard the gospel. Maybe it was through a parent. Maybe a friend. Maybe it was through a book. Maybe it was a sermon. But regardless of how you heard it, you did hear it. And you heard his call and you responded. That's what it means to be called. Next word, justified. And I'll be brief here because we've already spoken at length about justification. And we're going to pick it back up again um, in two weeks. But justification, let me... To, by way of reminder, means this, that God declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, and it is credited to us. So Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life, and then he, he, gets, he takes all of that righteousness, and then he gives it to you. Because you and I don't have our own righteousness. Jesus gives us his righteousness, and then while he's there giving us his righteousness, he takes our sin, and he goes and takes it and dies on the cross. That's, that's what's happening in justification. He stands in our place for our sin, and God's justice is satisfied in the death of Christ and is now able to pardon us. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Last word, glorification. This lets us know that God's plan is comprehensive. What is started in eternity past goes into eternity future. God's transformative work in your life does not end here. This process will come to an end one day. We will look like Jesus. We will share in his glory. What has been planned will be accomplished and applied in our lives, and it will come to completion. Paul is actually so certain of our future glorification that he actually speaks about it as if it's already taken place. Did you notice that? Glorification is what happens in the future, but he used a past tense word. That's poor grammar, but great theology. What he's saying is I can be so confident 
that what God has begun will be completed. I'm just going to write about it as if it's already done. He moves from foreknowledge to predestination to calling to justification to glorification. And you notice that there's no, there's no gaps there. In a few short words, he shows that not only is this process inevitable, but it is unbreakable. No one falls through the cracks. If you have been foreknown, guess what? You will be glorified. This process is never truncated in the life of a Christian. There is, there is no attrition. No one falls through. The chain from foreknew to glorification is unbreakable. It is unshakable. And none of these five verbs are optional for sons and daughters of God. And did you notice? None of them depend on you. None of them. These are things God does. Did you notice? Who is the subject of these verbs? It's not you. It's not me. It's God. He's the one who foreknows. He's the one who predestines. He's the one who calls. He's the one who justifies. He's the one who glorifies. All of it from beginning to end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We are just mentioned in this passage as the beneficiaries of God's work of salvation. If you are in Christ, friends, every single one of these verbs is true of you. For those who love God, all things work together for good. This massive, unbelievable promise sits on an unbreakable foundation of equal immensity. If you love God, you have been loved from before there was time. Your destiny has been laid out by the sovereign hand of God. At the proper time, not a moment too soon, God called you. I think of that scene where Jesus walks into that little girl's room and says, Talitha, wake up. That's, that's, that's what you, you, you were dead and your trespasses and sin. And God came next to your bedside and said, John, wake up. Eric, wake up. Marie, wake up. Emily, wake up. And you looked him in the face and you found in your heart, a love that you had never felt before to love him. And the reason you loved him is because he loved you first. Your sins have been paid for on the cross so that your, your status of condemnation has been replaced by justification. And Paul says you will be transformed into the image of Christ and glorified to look like him. Let me give you three quick applications. First, I want you to begin praying for God to do what only God can do. Pray for God to do what only God can do. If you're a Christian and you've responded to the message of the gospel by grace through faith, it is not unlikely, in fact, it is a reality that there are people that you care about, people that you love that you want to see respond to the gospel, right? I have them in my life and I know you have them in yours. And sometimes when we hear this doctrine, we balk at it because we start to wonder, well, has God foreknown my brother? Has he known, did he love my sister from before there was time? What about my mom, my dad, my husband, my wife, my coworker, my neighbor, my friend? Has God foreknown them? And we start to speculate if he has and we start to go, this can't be what's true. And we, and, and we think it's better to put their salvation in their hands. That's what we're doing in that moment. We're saying, I think it would be better if my unbelieving 
unloving person I care about, if we put salvation in their hands, as if they are a more trustworthy person to bring about their salvation. You see what we're doing there? Listen to me. Trust God to be God. To be who he is. He is good and loving and merciful and just. The truth of the matter is salvation belongs to the Lord anyway from beginning to end. Only God can awaken the dead. Only God can remove the heart of stone and give someone a heart of flesh. Only God can break through a person's fierce, stubborn commitment to themselves. Only God can save. So what should we do? Pray to the Lord of salvation. Ask God, would you overwhelm them with your love? Would you overwhelm them? Pray and ask God to do only what he can do. Second, know this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I've often heard people ask, well, what about that person who wants to be saved but can't because God didn't choose him? Friends, let me just tell you this. That theoretical person does not exist. Let me just, just like swipe that category right out of your mind. The person who wants to be saved but can't be saved does not exist. Here's why. Because no one on their own seeks after God. And a desire for salvation is evidence of God's prior foreknowledge of them. If someone wants to be saved, listen to me, they will be saved. Romans 10.13 says it like this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no one who calls upon the name of the Lord, repenting of their sin, begging for mercy and forgiveness. And God says, I am so sorry. I forgot to choose you. That has never and will never happen. It is, a, it is a theoretical impossibility. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I know there is a certain mystery as to how a sovereign God and his, how his sovereignty interacts with our responsibility and culpability. But our job is not to figure out um, how God does what he does. Our, our job is to believe what is good, true, and beautiful, to pray for people, to preach the gospel, and to respond to what God has done. Let's just let God be sovereign. That's, that's his job. And then let's be faithful and responsible to share the good news with those whom we love and to pray for their salvation. And third, finally, store up this promise for days of famine. Store up this promise we often don't need Romans 8, 28 when things are going well. We don't think about it then. When days of the harvest are plentiful, but when the harvest is lacking, when you face hardship and suffering, when you go through the famines of life, you're going to want this to be in your storehouse. You're going to want this promise to be there. You're going to want to have spent time in this verse. You want your storehouse to be filled to the brim. So you can go back and reflect on this. So it just wells up in your heart. Friends, doesn't it comfort you if you are in Christ to know that you have been loved from before there was even time? Doesn't it encourage you to know that every single thing that comes your way has been carefully laid out by the sovereign and loving hand of God and all of it is purposeful and meaningful to work out for your good? Isn't it a warm blanket on a cold New England night to know that this amazing promise rests on an unbreakable, unshakable foundation? In the days of famine, you will have want to spend time 
in these verses to know that your current circumstances are not an indication that you've been forgotten. It is not an indication that you have been forsaken. Rather, in that moment, even in the hard reality of your suffering, you are infinitely loved and God is working all things, even this terrible thing, together for your good. Let's pray.